0: This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. Hello, I'm Charlie Kindrigan, and I'm professor of family law here at Suffolk University Law School. One of the subjects that I teach, along with adjunct professor Maureen McBride, is the law governing assisted reproductive technology. And Maureen and I had an opportunity recently, along with some physicians and medical professors, to participate in a program discussing an issue relating to a 36-year-old woman who collapsed on an airplane. By the time that they got her to Massachusetts General Hospital, she was effectively brain dead. And the question became, can we retrieve her eggs so that perhaps someone else in her family could use them, another female. And that was something that was sought by her mother and some members of the family, but not all. It created quite a medical problem and obviously a legal problem as well. The question became, can you remove gametes, whether eggs or sperm, from a person who is brain dead and is therefore unable to consent? Now, it's possible, of course, that somebody could have given their consent before they became brain damaged or dead, but that did not happen in this case. So the question then becomes, is there any justification for removing the eggs from a woman when it is no therapeutic benefit to her? And the position that I took, at least, was that they could not because consent is needed. You can't just cause a person to give conception to a child after the parent's death unless that person consented in advance. Now there may be cases where someone else has been provided with a proxy in order to make that decision, and that could be, for example, her husband. She was a married woman, but it was not the case, again, here that any such proxy form had been signed before. The brain damage was done by the fall that took place on the airplane. Now, one other question, of course, that's going to come up in a lot of these cases is the question of whether it's ever justifiable to conceive a child after a parent's death. And there has been a remarkable number of cases involving this issue in a context entirely different from the one that we have here. Historically, of course, it was always possible for a father to die after the conception of a child And the law long took account of that. But these questions relating to posthumous reproduction of children is entirely new because it deals with the conception of a child after a patient's death. And there have been a good number of cases, including one here in Massachusetts, the Woodward case, where a woman used her husband's cryopreserved sperm after his death in order to carry a child by him. took place about two years after his death. In that case, the court was somewhat bothered by the event on the question of whether or not that child was an heir of the deceased father. It raised questions about the Social Security status of the children. Were they children of a deceased worker or not? In that case, the court said, yes, they're legal heirs under the law of Massachusetts, for purposes of Social Security, given the fact that the conception of the child was relatively close in time to the death of the father. It might be a whole different case where five, ten years have passed, and probably the court would not have so ruled in that kind of case. So these are cases that are going to come up again and again. My co-author, Maureen, who teaches this course with me here at the law school, recently had a case that she handled in the Midwest, in Nebraska, relating to this whole question, again, in the Social Security context. And that's a case that's still pending for resolution at this time. But other states have gone in a different direction. New Hampshire, for example, and Arkansas have ruled that the child conceived after death of a parent is not the child of that person so it's a whole new area of law and it's certainly one that's very exciting and interesting and it brings together legal and medical ethical moral issues in a rather remarkable way. This was an article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on July 15th 2010. And this involves a discussion that took place between the three physicians, one medical professor from Harvard Medical School and myself as well as Maureen and several nurses. It was a discussion of the case that at that time had not yet been resolved. The final resolution, as you can see from reading this article, which has already gotten a good deal of attention nationally, is that the woman was allowed to die. Medical support systems were removed from her She happened to be on oral contraceptives, which would have meant that it would have had to keep her alive for another two and a half months solely for the purpose of flushing the oral contraceptives out of her system. And there did not seem to be any legal or medical benefit to doing that. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.